0: Thank <sweak> you. Hello, and welcome to the Belt and Road podcast, where we cover the latest news, research, and analysis of China's growing presence in the developing world. I am your host, Eric Mike Starino, coming to you today from Durham, North Carolina. Uh, before we begin, I want to thank everyone for the support of the inaugural episode that came out last week with Emily Weinstein, and to let you know that the Belt and Road podcast is more than just a podcast, but also a network that updates daily the latest news and analysis of the Belt and Road initiative. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook or SoundCloud at Belt and Road Pod. So please like or follow on those social medias. And we are now also on the iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify stores. And you just have to search for the Belt and Road Podcast. Please like, follow, and rate five stars if you feel so generous. I'm very excited for our second episode today. Uh, We're going to get a little meta. Uh, We are going to talk about how many Western audiences understand the Belt and Road Initiative, specifically through how the Belt and Road Initiative is framed in the Western media. And we couldn't have a better guest on than Tom Baxter. Tom Baxter works in communications and focuses on the environmental impacts of the Belt and Road investments at Greenpeace East Asia in Beijing. He is also a self-proclaimed news junkie who writes on the environment, the media, and other China-related topics. Uh, I've asked him on the show today because of his fantastic... July twenty seventh piece on the blog Panda Paw Dragon Claw that is panda paw pa, blog entitled Zooming In Zooming Out the frames through which Western media see the Belt and Road. So Tom, welcome to the Belt and Road podcast.
1: Thanks Eric, pleasure to be here, and I'm glad that you've got this podcast going. It's great just to hear more and more voices on this issue.
0: So, Tom, what was your impetus for writing this article?
1: I think there was a number of things. I've been in China for a while now, and I've been following Chinese news and stuff for a while. You said, you said that I'm a news junkie. So I've been following these issues for a while. And I think kind of dawned on me in the last few years that media reporting on Belton Road was in a bit of a bind, didn't really know the direction to take. And at the same time, through reading some of those media reports and through seeing other things, hearing things that some of my colleagues were saying, and also seeing with my own eyes, in one case, actually, in in West Africa, that Belt and Road is happening right now and the impacts are happening right now, made me think that, well, we've really, all of us, whether it's media or NGOs, we've really got to... Think about how to talk about this issue. And we've got to do that now. The other thing I think I was aware of, or I'm still aware of, is that the way that the Western media are reporting Belt and Road is quite different from how the Chinese media are reporting it. And I'm aware that there's also different perspectives from, for example, Indonesia or other Southeast Asian countries, from India, from Pakistan. And there's many different perspectives on what Belt and Road is. At the same time, it's happening right here, right now, and making dramatic impacts across the world. So it's definitely time for us to start. As as you said, getting a bit met and thinking about how are we talking about this initiative?
0: Certainly how it's framed is so important. You know, Anyone who's read uh, multiple Belt and Road Initiative-type articles, you see that lots of them will be kind of these grand articles. And when you have something like the Belt and Road Initiative, that is a little bit opaque, that is nebulous, I think is a word that you used. You know, I've, I've heard the Belt and Road Initiative utilized as a Rorschach test, where whatever your preconceived notions of China was in the past, that is what you bring into the Belt and Road Initiative now. But of course, it's, the reality is a whole lot more nuanced.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of one of the points of the article. We'll get into it more a bit later, I'm sure, but about how there are lots of players, there are lots of roles, and there are lots of nuances. And I guess, ultimately, another purpose of the article or purpose of these kind of conversations is that something like Western media has so much power in how the world comes to understand what Belt and Road is. There are other players there as well, but Western media have huge influence. And so how they're reporting that is crucial for governments, for local civil society. And, and for researchers, you name it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. In your piece, you talk about three different main narratives that the Western media utilizes in their coverage of the Belt and Road Initiative. Can you go into these three? Uh, The first you talk about is great power rivalry. I
1: think this is probably the dominant framing or narrative that we see in Western media talking about Belt and Road, encompassing things such as, is Belt and Road a threat to U.S. or Western domination of the global political order? Is it reorientating the world towards China? This is the main narrative framing that I picked up on. I highlighted a few articles that kind of talked in this way. One was the New York Times talking about a railway project starting in Laos and to be extended through Southeast Asia. And it very much framed it in terms of the infrastructure project being a geopolitical strategic project. Uh, project. I also talked about a report in The Economist, which was titled something along the lines of, will BRI outdo the Marshall Plan? So it's very much setting up a China versus the current or the Western-dominated world order framing. And then I, I kind of dug into that a bit and just critiqued it a little. It's, it's very difficult to say whether that's right or wrong in particular, but it certainly does, uh, if you focus on that framing, it certainly does sort of blinker you to some other aspects of what's going on. I think maybe the three things that it downplays, you tend to lose sight of the multiple actors on China's side, where in actual fact, with a lot of Belt and Road projects, you've got Chinese banks, you've got Chinese state-owned companies, you've got Chinese ministries, you've got local embassies. And often when you take this framing, these things just get wrapped up under the banner of China. I think it also somewhat uh, downplays the agency of recipient countries, which is going to be different with all these different countries. I mean, there's definitely definitely a certain power dynamics going on here, and China tends to be the most powerful player. But at the end of the day, there are players in those recipient countries, whether they're ministries or companies that are going into joint ventures, who have a say of yes or no. And thirdly, I think it downplays one of the big push factors within China, which is the big overcapacity problem that a lot of state-owned companies are facing and the changing nature of the Chinese economy.
0: Most well, certainly. When I read your piece, one of the parts that I really took to was a section in which you talked about how oftentimes in these more grand narrative pieces, all these different players that actually are involved within the Belt and Road Initiative can be placed under the broad banner of China, or sometimes even all placing it under Xi Jinping, as if every project has a direct geopolitical narrative to it, uh, downplaying kind of the economic roles of overcapacity at home and increasing the markets for state-owned enterprises, There's even some private companies that take part in the Belt and Road Initiative. And sometimes state owned enterprise interests won't necessarily align with the Chinese state's interests in a certain place. You mentioned briefly that you were in West Africa. Uh, did you see any of the nuances play out of the Belt and Road Initiative there? Or can you tell me about what you saw on the ground in West Africa about Chinese presence there?
1: I'm not sure if I saw the uh, the nuances as such, but last year I was in Sierra Leone and Senegal for a Greenpeace project, but it wasn't to do with Belt and Road. It was actually to do with fishing uh, in West Africa, partly to do with Chinese companies' fishing activities there. But while I was in those countries, and particularly in Sierra Leone, the presence of Chinese companies, you can't avoid it. I mean, roads, hospitals, you name it, would be plastered with the logos of Chinese uh, state-owned companies. So I-, I was there very briefly, and I wouldn't say that I saw the nuance of it all, but definitely left an impression on me that Belt and Road is not uh, an abstract concept. It's something that's happening right now.
0: So first, you talked about great power rivalry. The second narrative you brought about was international development with Chinese characteristics. Can you go into that?
1: Sure. So I think this section, I think there's probably less articles that come under this theme, but there's certainly some articles around. I remember one that I mentioned in the piece from Bloomberg, which listed out the Chinese invested projects around the world that are having the most direct impacts on those countries. And it also linked in with some other things I've been reading, in particular an op-ed piece in the New York Times earlier this year by James Millward, who's a professor at Georgetown University, where he, he basically just said, when the Chinese government puts out rhetoric of the Belt and Road is to help other countries develop, and China has experience developing and lifting people out of poverty, we can't dismiss that. It's absolutely true. China's done incredible stuff in terms of lifting people out of poverty, in terms of increasing life expectancy, education rates. And at the same time, the West's, his, of development aid and development programs in, in places like Africa have not met with resounding success. So this is something that we really need to take seriously from China. And I think on that front, when Western media have been covering these kind of things, they do look at it more uh, positively or at least sort of ambivalently and, and check the pros and the cons. I think a big proponent of this rigorously checking the pros and cons has been Deborah Broutingham, who's a professor of China-Africa relations, who's got a few great books and also writes some really good
0: opinion basis. Yeah, it was actually Dr. Brodigham that got me interested in this field as a whole. I remember back in 2009, back in undergraduate, I when I read her first book, uh, The Dragon's Gift, at the time, the China-Africa field was quite new, or at least the popularity of it. And the media narratives of it were quite underdeveloped. Mostly all you'd see is just the neocolonialism or the China-will-do-anything-for-resources type narratives. And after reading her book, it just brought me a whole new understanding of the world. You know, I hadn't spent much time in China, or I hadn't spent any time in China yet. And I hadn't really studied much Chinese international politics either. But reading her and seeing, of course, again, the nuances, which I'll always come back to, but the the different actors involved, how the recipient countries or the host countries of Chinese investment or contracting work or financing, how their domestic politics plays into it, it really shined a new light on the subject as a whole. Uh, I guess my point here is I I really love her work, and especially the op-ed piece that you highlighted is very characteristic of hers. I think it's a wonderful example of of every second narrative that you highlighted, uh, international development with Chinese characteristics. Yep, Absolutely. So we've gone over the the first two, the great power rivalry and international development Chinese characteristics. Your third narrative is big picture and local voices. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so I kind of
1: um, noticed in a lot of articles uh, from different Western media outlets, there are kind of two themes going on, one of which was attempting to explain what Belt and Road is and the whole scope of the initiative, which absolutely needs to be done. It's kind of one of those impossible tasks, right, given how huge it is and how many different variations of the initiative there are in different countries. And it's genuinely nebulous nature, like we said before. But the other theme that was going on were these uh, local case studies, which are kind of Zoom in on these case studies and then bringing it out to the big picture of what Belt and Road is. I think one of the reasons I wanted to highlight this so much was that there's quite a contrast to how Chinese domestic media are reporting on Belt and Road, which was highlighted in actually the first article on the Panda Poor Dragon Claw blog by Matt Ma Tianjia, who looked into Caixin and Jing articles on Belt and Road. And one of the things he found is that they, they tended to, in contrast to how they would normally report things in China, they tended to sort of brush over these um, local voices and local concerns on Belt and Road. Whereas Western media, in what I think is actually quite a standard format for reporting for Western media, we're often highlighting and amplifying local voices from local fishermen, local farmers. And I think that's a real strength of the Western media. I also think it's something that's of particular interest to me and my colleagues working in the NGO sector, because of course, these local voices are the people who are going to be affected the most and often the people who are least hurt. So we're very glad to see those voices amplified and and Western media seems to be the outlet that's doing that the most.
0: And I'm just going to clarify for some listeners about the Taishin media and Chinese media in general. The vast majority of media in China is party-controlled A lot of censorship is self-censorship, and there are a few private networks that do great journalism. Um, One of them is Caixin. Uh, It's kind of a Bloomberg or economist. They focus a lot on the economy, but they do very hard-hitting reports on, on domestic corruption and on the environment in China. So can you talk about the differences between, let's say, a Bloomberg report and a Caixin report and the differences in the framing of Chinese projects abroad? Uh sure
1: and and thanks for picking me up on that I mean it's worth noting that there is actually quite a spectrum of Chinese media and it wouldn't make any sense to compare western media coverage with for example the coverage from Xinhua or China, China Daily. But it does make some sense to compare it with what Caixin are saying, or what Jing are saying, or maybe Southern Weekly, Nanfang Zhou Mo. Because these media are relatively independent, have typically had a reputation for being quite outspoken. And they also have a readership who are quite well-educated and liberal. I think the difference in the reporting comes from a number of factors. First is that Chinese media typically haven't had a, a hugely global outlook and as a result readers uh, demands are, are somewhat different from what you'd expect from a reader's demand of New York Times or Bloomberg or Economist for example but also a lot of these more independent outlets that we're talking about like Taisin and Taisheng they they don't have an enormous network of correspondents around the world actually the, the the second article on the Panda Paw Dragon Claw blog is an interview with one of the editors from Taisin from Tyson Globus actually who dives into this issue and he took he t- this is Michael Antti, who some of your listeners might have heard of. He dives into both the, uh, what the expectations from the Chinese readers are and also the limits on the capacity of organizations like Tyson, which are only now really trying to expand into global uh, news organizations.
0: So your article is on Pandapod Dragonclaw, which has wonderful other blog entries as well. Can you just go into a little bit about what that initiative is?
1: Sure. So this is a blog set up by actually a former colleague of mine with the idea to look into what exactly is Belt and Road, how are we talking about it, and giving space for longer pieces than you'd get in in normal media outlets, and also giving space for different voices, Chinese voices, Western voices, and also soon voices from Southeast Asia and, and other places.
0: Yeah, it certainly has some of the best writings I've read on the Belt and Road Initiative. I know it has a focus on Belt and Road, on China's going out, and on the media.
1: Right, so there's kind of two themes that we're going to try to focus on. One is uh, getting some of the experts we know in the field from the NGO community and research communities to write on their expertise areas, whether that's finance or uh, coal power. And then there's this sort of, as we're talking about a lot in this podcast today, this kind of meta angle of analyzing how we're talking about the initiative.
0: Taking a step back, we've gone through three narratives that the Western media has utilized for the Belt and Road Initiative. But how useful do you find reporting on the Belt and Road Initiative as a whole? Uh, I mean, of course, yes, it's important on a geostrategic level looking at it through the lens of foreign policy and kind of great power politics, especially in the third narrative that you saw on the local level, uh, when you see something like, how much does... What's happening between China and Sri Lanka really matter between what's happening in China, Malaysia, or Kenya. Just how useful is even looking at the Belt and Road Initiative as the Belt and Road Initiative? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. And
1: it's um, it's one of those things, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to this. I think we can't, we can't not engage with this initiative that's called Belt and Road. The Chinese government is talking about it constantly governments around the world are talking about it more and more and the media and researchers and ngo communities will have to engage with that notion but it is important to bear in mind that that what exactly Belt and Road did is, is 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 still not exactly clear the definitions kind of blurry we know there's lots of projects around the world which used to label themselves under China going out which was the previous uh, kind of international industry policy from the chinese government uh, and now they're labeling themselves as belt and road so what exactly counts as a belt and road project just proclaiming yourself as one makes you count as one Uh, all these all these questions i think we have to bear in mind but at the same time i think it so i think we need to be aware of these issues but at the same time we can't avoid talking about belt and road and we're never i believe anyway we're never going to find a precise definition of what it is at the same time as i was saying at the beginning the impacts of whatever this initiative is exactly are happening right now. We can't really get caught up in uh, these arguments of what Belt and Road is. We kind of just need to work with the the nebulousness of it and try and find a way through that. That's, um, that's, my, that's my beliefs on that kind of issue.
0: Yeah, I think I would absolutely agree with you. I, the Belt and Road initiative is very nebulous. It's very confounding, different. Uh, there is a state Belt and Road initiative, and then there are other actors like on the first episode where you have a uh, among you the big uh, dairy drinkable dairy company that has belt and road dairy marketing but uh you know is that part of the belt and road initiative or but does that matter there is a railroad being built in kenya there is highway being done there is a port in sri lanka and that has dramatic effects on the ground geopolitically has dramatic effects on the ground for the locals who are living there and so uh, i guess not engaging on it as the idea of the belgian road initiative um I guess I'm always just for nuance. That's what I'm always calling for
1: yeah and then and then as you mentioned as to whether specific projects can be called sort of the key projects of Belt and Road and the the Belt and Road rests on their failure or their success I think a lot of these are kind of uh, this kind of spin on specific projects is quite over exaggerated
0: so uh, like in the sense of you know Malaysia's um, new prime minister was re-looking at the infrastructure contracts and then there's lots of or articles that come out is the Belt and Road done in that kind of effect. And that could be somewhat to editors making uh, dramatic headlines. But
1: Sure. I think the best way to approach that sort of issue is to start from the question, is this about Belt and Road or is this about Malaysia-China bilateral relations?
0: Yeah, I think that's a great way to think about it. So I know that you specifically stated that this piece is for journalists or researchers or anyone who's engaging on writing on this. And so How would you recommend uh, going about journalists and you get pieced on doing doing the do a Belt and Road initiative piece? Like how would you uh, or at least or at least what pitfalls would you uh, ask or recommend to stay away from?
1: Yeah, I think I mean, a lot of these a lot of these frames that I kind of identified as reporting, they're not they're not exactly wrong in any sense. But I think my main point is really that they're kind of blinkering from some other things. I think one of the points that I noticed when I was doing the research for this article is that of the three framings I identified, you tend to have either or in the Western media's coverage. So you tend to have either this geopolitical perspective of China's grand initiative to reshape the global order, or you have a report on China's changing economy and how that's pushing SOEs overseas, or you have a report on how Chinese investment is bringing development to X country. Uh, but the reality is that all of these things are merged together. So I think it's it's a challenge of trying to find a way to tell these stories together that obviously is still appealing to an everyday audience without making these things too intellectual. This is something you brought up in our online conversations is these kind of historical analogies. There have been a lot of analogies with the Marshall Plan and also with colonialism. And I think those those analogies are of some use to help people understand what this is or what it's not. But I think it's important not to get stuck into that mode of thinking. So I think finding different analogies is useful. um, And I think realizing why we're using those analogies is also important.
0: Great. I think that's a wonderful sentiment to uh, end this podcast with. Thank you so much, Tom, for coming on. Uh, Stick around for recommendations. Tom Baxter works in communications and focuses on the environmental impacts of Belt and Road investments at Greenpeace East Asia in Beijing. He also writes on the environment, the media, and other China-related topics. His latest story, which we talked about today, was Zooming In, Zooming Out, the Frames Through Which Western Media See the Belt and Road. It is on the wonderful blog, panda paw dragon claw dot blog so Tom do you have any recommendations for our listeners today
1: yeah so um, I've actually got a couple of recommendations uh, the first one is for any of your listeners who read Chinese the Financial Times Chinese has had a series of opinion articles recently about precisely media coverage of Belt and Road but from a from a Chinese perspective and some of them actually from a quite party perspective These are voices I think we do need to take seriously. Secondly, I'm bringing it much more down to earth. um, Just last week, the Guardian published a great story called Follow the New Silk Road by Jonathan Watts, um, where he basically visits three cities, one in China, one in Kazakhstan, one in Georgia, and outlines the impacts and the expectations of Belt and Road in these three cities. I thought it was a very down to earth and... uh, very much getting to the reality on the ground of Bolton Road.
0: And with my recommendation, I'm going to take us from very much down on the earth on the ground to uh, back up a little in the ivory tower. Uh, My recommendation is China Challenges Global Governance, uh, Chinese International Development Finance, and the AIIB by Shahar Hamiri and Lee Jones. It is in the third volume of 2018's International Affairs Journal. It's a wonderful article that that talks about the AIB, thus far, its overblown importance and how, uh, you know, lots of the threat, if there is a threat to uh, global governance as a whole, is kind of more from the major Chinese policy banks, XM Bank, the China Development Bank. I highly recommend it. Get it at your nearest academic library. Tom, if somebody wants to find what you're reading, what you're writing these days, how would they find you on social media? Uh, best to find me on Twitter.
1: As you said, I'm a news junkie, which means I'm also a Twitter junkie. Um, so you can find me on @TomBaxter17.
0: It, it certainly is a sickness. Once you get on Twitter, I I didn't understand Twitter for a few years, and then then I then I got to it, and now I can't put it down. So. Um, Well, thanks again for listening to the Belt and Road Podcast. I'm Eric Mike Serino, and you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or SoundCloud at Belt and Road Pod. And we are now on iTunes Store, Google Play Store, and Spotify if you search for the Belt and Road Podcast. Uh, Thanks again.